Can a worker be required to join or contribute to a union even if they don't support its activities? This is a question the U.S. Supreme Court is currently considering, and its outcome could have big consequences for both public sector labor unions and the political balance in Washington state. I'm Columbia News reporter Jake Thomas. My story in this Sunday's Columbian takes a look at Janus v. AFSCME. The case concerns Mark Janus, a state worker in Illinois, who says being required to contribute to a union violates his civil rights. The case is an extension of other recent rulings that have chipped away at a long-standing legal precedent that requires workers who benefit from public sector unions to financially support them. A ruling for Janus could financially undermine public sector unions, which make up a significant source of support for the Democratic Party. But how the ruling plays out depends on how unions respond. In the last legislative session, unions had some help from Democratic lawmakers. In this special edition of Clark Talks, I interview Monica Stonier, a Democratic state representative for Vancouver, on what the ruling might mean and how the legislature has prepared for a potential ruling for Janus. But first, my interview with Maxford Nelson, Labor Policy Director at the Freedom Foundation. In recent years, the conservative think tank has used other court rulings to undermine the support of unions. We'll talk about what this ruling and others before it will mean for Washington state. Uh, what could the Janus case mean for Washington specifically? So the, the Janus versus AFSCME case, if the U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiff, Mark, Mark Janus, a state employee from Illinois, uh, the effect would be that all public employees nationwide would have the ability to choose for themselves whether to join and financially support a labor union. Uh, in Washington State, there's about a quarter million public employees, the vast majority of whom are currently required uh, to pay dues or fees to a union as a condition of keeping their job. And so that, that requirement would end uh, and, and membership and dues payment would become optional for those employees. So just like uh, you know, it would have significant consequences for Illinois and, and other states uh, in, in which workers you know, can be forced to make these payments, you know, it, would, it would have a big, big effect for, for employees, uh, public employees here in Washington. Do you think that a lot of public sector employees would, would, would choose to not be, a un, be in a union? You know, it's, it's really hard to say, and, and there's a lot of speculation about that very question right now. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is, uh, I think that the fact that we even have to ask that question highlights some of the, the injustice of the, of the current system. Uh, because employees under, under existing law are forced to make these payments to the union, there's really no way to tell uh, whether these unions are acting in the interest of their membership or what the membership thinks about the union or, or the supportive of the activities of the union or not. Uh, you know, we're, we're present here down in Olympia uh, and, and pay very close attention to, to what's going on in the state legislature, and I'll go testify on labor bills periodically as well, you know, various union lobbyists. And it's always interesting when you're in these committee hearings to listen to the union you know, lobbyists get up and say, you know, I'm with the Washington Education Association, and I'm here representing you know, 90,000 teachers in Washington State. Well, I don't deny that there's you know, 90,000 teachers that fall under a WEA uh, collective bargaining agreement, but there's really no way to know how many of those teachers actually support the Washington Education Association's agenda or what the lobbyist you know, happens to be there testifying on that day, uh, because, again, this is a compelled situation. So until we move to that voluntary scenario, I, there's, there's really no way to know. 
I do think there's going to be varying responses among unions and among different types of public employees. Uh, you know, I think as a practical matter, some unions have probably done a better job of providing uh, a valuable service to their members uh, that's worth the dues that they pay. And, you know, those unions will tend to have less to worry about when membership becomes voluntary. And I think there's some unions out there that have largely taken their membership for granted, and they'll probably have more to worry about. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some unions lose, you know, a couple percent of their membership. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if some unions lost uh, quite a bit more. So uh, what unions do you think might see less of their membership uh, peel off? Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to say with specificity. Um, you know, I, I think a lot, again, is, is also going to depend on how aggressive each union is in, in responding to the Janus case. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot that we can learn from the way the Supreme Court's decision in the Harris versus Quinn case a few years ago played out in Washington. Uh, the Harris versus Quinn decision established that partial public employees could not be forced to financially support a union. And a partial public so, employee would be somebody like a home health care provider that's getting uh, support from the state to take care of a loved one, for, for instance, but isn't a, a full it, employee. That's exactly right. Yeah, the other big group in Washington are child care providers who are paid by the state to provide child care services out of their home to a low-income family that, that qualifies for state assistance. So that's, that's kind of the formula. The state will pay somebody to provide a service to a, a low-income individual or, or family that qualifies for state aid. So they're being paid by the state, but they're not employees of the state. Uh, and so those folks, uh, those two groups in Washington, uh, family child care providers and state-paid home care workers uh, now have the ability, because of this 2014 Supreme Court decision, to, to join and financially support the SEIU, uh, their, their union, or not. And the Family Child Care Providers Union, SEIU 925, has lost two-thirds of its membership since that decision. Uh, they've not done a very good job of, of uh, proving to their members that they're providing services we're paying for. Uh, and they've not been uh, horribly aggressive about preventing their members from, from opting out and, and exercising their rights. On the flip side, SEIU 775, which represents the home care workers, uh, has been incredibly aggressive about trying to prevent uh, home care workers from resigning from the union, and they've employed a host of gimmicks and procedural issues, uh, misinformation to prevent people from, from opting out. And, you know, I, I think there's a tendency, you know, we, we tend to assume that a Supreme Court decision is the final word on a subject, and, and yes, that's true, but usually Supreme Court decisions don't get into the minutia of, uh, of how this is going to play out in practical reality. So the court may say membership is voluntary. Uh, but then you get a, a union that has political allies in Olympia that have an interest in maintaining its ability to collect dues, and all of a sudden workers have to jump through all these hoops to actually opt out of the union, or they're having dues money withheld without their permission, uh, or they're being misinformed by the union and by state actors about what their options are. And so there's, there's a lot of those peripheral issues that still have to be dealt with, even if, in principle, these workers can't be forced to pay pay union dues anymore. So, you know, we've we've learned from that decision that there could be a, a very uh, very wide disparity uh, when it comes to how unions fare. 
there's been a lot of articles written on GNS, and some of them describe this potentially catastrophic situation for unions, where if the court rules in favor of Janus, then it could cripple public sector employees and the the base of political support for, for the Democrats in, in a lot of states like Washington. But it sounds like what you're saying is that it really depends on how this, what happens at the state level and how these unions respond to it that could really determine the effects of Janus. Is, is that about right? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. And, and I, I think there's a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric out there coming from, from labor right now. Uh, obviously, they, they want to maintain the ability to compel dues payment. Any, any organization, any business that had an arrangement like that that could force people to pay for their services, wanted or not, would, would have a financial interest in maintaining that arrangement. Uh, but we've got 28 states in, in the union now uh, that have right-to-work laws on the books and that have made it uh, illegal for unions to have people fired for re refusing to pay dues or fees. So this is, not, this is not foreign territory. This is not something that's never been tried before. Um, you, you know, when you look across the country, and, and quite a few of these right-to-work states nonetheless have very active, uh, healthy, uh, politically influential public sector unions. Uh, so, you know, this is not going to prevent unions from existing. It's not going to prevent unions from bargaining over the same issues that they do now. It's not going to prevent anybody from joining uh, a union if they want to. It's only going to address that one question of can unions force individual employees to pay for those services. So I wonder about a state like Wisconsin, which used to be much more democratic and used to have a stronger, uh, seemed like a stronger union base. Uh, there was a uh, Scott Walker forced through some. He got through some reforms in in Wisconsin. Um, I'm wondering, is it, is it could the Janus decision could it set up uh, lay the, the groundwork for similar things happening in other states like maybe Washington? I, you know, I, uh, it's it's very difficult to say that far in advance. Uh, you know, I, I will say the the Wisconsin uh, experience is often cited as. Uh, is proof of how how difficult uh, right to work will make life for for public sector labor unions. Um, but what a lot of folks don't understand is that the reforms that were passed in Wisconsin, uh, the Act 10 reforms uh, in 2011, as I recall, included right to work uh, and and voluntary union membership as one component. But it did uh, it did quite a bit more than that. Uh, basically, just went a, a few steps shy of, of eliminating collective bargaining for uh, for many types of public employees. Uh, so there's there was a steep decline in, in public sector union membership there as a result of those reforms, but that's not anything near the scale of what the Supreme Court is considering in, in Janus. Uh, so, I mean, whether whether states want to go in that direction is, is going to be up to, you know, individual state legislatures and policymakers to decide. Uh, but as far as the Janus case is concerned, we're, we're again, we're just looking at this one question of whether it's constitutional for states to allow unions uh, to force public employees to pay dues. So it seems like on some level, and correct me if I, I'm wrong with this, but it seems like on some level if the, Jan if the court rules in favor of Janus, it would create almost like an, a, a right to work framework nationally for public sector employees. Yes, yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, right, right to work is just a, a term. It's it's not a legal term, uh, but it's just the the name for this policy idea uh, that membership, that union membership, is voluntary and and not coerced. 
Um, so I want to talk about the last legislative session. Uh, so did it seem to you that during the 2018 legislative session that lawmakers had Janice on their mind? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we had a very interesting very interesting timing and political dynamics at work in the 2018 legislature here in Olympia. Uh, the the legislature has been narrowly divided uh, for years now with a slim uh, Democratic majority in the House and a slim Republican uh, slash conservative-ish uh, majority in the Senate with one uh, conservative Democrat caucusing with, uh, with the Republicans. Uh, that dynamic changed this year because of the special election up in the 45th district. Uh, there was an open seat there that the uh, that had been held by a Republican, uh, Senator Andy Hill, who passed away, uh, and then a, a Democrat, uh, Senator Monica Dingra, ended up winning winning that seat. So that flipped control of the state Senate back to the Democrats with with now a one vote majority in both houses. So that was kind of the context coming into to the 2018 legislative session. Uh, now. The Supreme Court decision in Janus is probably going to come down around June. This is something that the uh, the labor movement, uh, government unions, have been talking about and, and worried about for a while. Those unions made a big push in Olympia this year to get allied lawmakers uh, and the Democratic majorities in both houses to pass legislation uh, preemptively to blunt the impact of, of their expected loss in that case. There were four bills in particular that were introduced uh, that we believe were directly targeting the Janus case. Uh, there were two that passed, two that did not. Uh, the two bills that did pass, Senate Bill 6229, uh, gives unions uh, a chance to sit down for 30 minutes at least with newly hired public employees to try to pressure and, and coerce them into signing union membership forms. This is one of the tactics that we saw SEIU employ uh, in the wake of the, the Harris versus Quinn decision. Uh, and the experience that these caregivers report in these, these captive audience meetings with union organizers are highly coercive. Uh, the information that's being presented is not accurate. Uh, we've even obtained uh, emails from, from state employees, uh, DSHS employees, that are that are administering administering the orientations for these new caregivers uh, that talk about folks being reduced to tears by the by the pressure of these union organizers coming in and, and doing whatever is necessary to get them to sign up for union membership, and that's exactly what we anticipate uh, government unions are going to do with these meetings. But, but they can uh, still opt out under that world. under the provisions of that of that bill. the 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 worker can still opt out of the union if they want. Correct. Yeah, that there's nothing. I mean, you can't uh, you can't directly contradict a Supreme Court decision, uh, but what this does is it allows unions to uh, an opportunity to pressure folks into signing up. Now there is a provision. It's worth noting in many of the union membership forms, uh, there most of the major public sector unions in Washington have have revised the fine print on their membership forms. Uh, to to make it very difficult for anybody who signs one of those forms to ever cancel the the authorization. So, for example, the membership form currently being distributed by the Washington Federation of State Employees uh, provides that anybody who signs the card can only cancel the dues deductions from their pay during a 10-day annual window period 
that occurs 20 days before the annual anniversary of the day they sign the card. They can only cancel the authorization during that period if they notify both their employer and the union in writing. So it's, it's basically limiting the ability of these employees to exercise their constitutional rights to 10 days a year. Uh, and, of course, the union is the entity that maintains the membership card on file, so you have to try to get a copy of it from the union in order to calculate your individualized window uh, and then make sure that you get the <laughs> proper written notice with the right language to both the right recipient at the employer and the right recipient on the union during that period. It's very difficult. Um, businesses that engage in anything similar would be, uh, <laughs> would be subject to a lot of criticism. Okay. And then there's another bill as well. Uh, there, there was the one with the home health care workers that was aimed at that, right? Yeah, correct. So that's uh, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, there, there was another bill uh, that was targeting the, the Harris versus Quinn decision. Uh, and so it, it pertained to these home care workers that we discussed earlier. The, the Harris versus Quinn decision applied to these caregivers because it recognized that they were these, these partial public employees. So under current law, the unionization of these caregivers took place under our state labor laws. What this bill, Senate Bill 6199, seeks to do, and it, and it was passed uh, on largely party lines, uh, very contentious votes in both the, the House and the Senate. What Senate Bill 6199 does is it directs the Department of Social and Health Services to hire a private company to administer the home care program. And the bill specifies that that private company is going to become the employer of these caregivers. So the, the goal here is to, uh, to remove caregivers from being subject to our state labor laws and to make them private sector employees who are subject to federal labor laws, the, Na the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, they would no longer, theory goes, be considered partial public employees and would no longer be subject to the protections of Harris versus Quinn. So basically, this is, this is a move that is designed to allow SEIU to, again, force these caregivers back into financially supporting the union as a condition of participating in this program. That was in the legislation that they have to be members of SEIU? Pardon? Oh, so, th so that was part of the, was that part of the bill that they have to be members of a union? So it's it's not specifically spelled out in the bill, but it doesn't it doesn't need to be. Uh, and at this point, the Department of Social and Health Services has admitted that that is uh, that would be allowed under the bill. Uh, SEIU's uh, executive director and their secretary treasurer have both indicated that 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 would be the case. Now that that would be the legal result of making these caregivers private sector employees. So uh, and there was even a, a memo uh, that we obtained from Governor Inslee's office. Under, under our public records laws uh, that dated back to 2014 when the Harris decision was decided. And the memo is prepared for Inslee by, by his staff, and it lists the various ways that SEIU wanted the state's help in avoiding or blunting the impact of the Harris case. One of the items that the union had asked for as far back as 2014 was legislation to privatize the home care workforce so that they would be private employees not subject to uh, the protections of the Harris decision. So it just took several years for Democrats to maintain or you know to capture majorities in both houses of the legislature to be able to deliver that item to SEIU. So there's there was no doubt and uh, really no disputing in the legislative session this year that the underlying motive behind this bill was was to force these caregivers back into SEIU. 
So the, the, the rationale given for this is that DSHS requested this bill, and they said it was going to deliver more efficiencies over the long run. Uh, th- th- what, what do you make of that explanation? Well, I, I mean, they had to have some public-facing explanation other than this is a special interest giveaway to roll <laughs> back the clock on workers' rights and benefit one of our biggest campaign donors. Uh, and so what, what we saw going into the legislative session was, was SEIU was, was initially very quiet about the bill. Their, their lobbyists didn't show up to testify. They were, were turning away media inquiries and directing everybody to DSHS. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to take that argument seriously for a couple of reasons. First of all, the, the bill is going to cost taxpayers tens of millions of additional dollars. Uh, this is not something that's creating efficiencies or tax savings. Uh, it, it costs taxpayers quite a bit of money. Uh, and the reason for that is in, in a traditional scenario in which the government contracts out services, uh, you know, the formula is the government is going to hire a private company to perform some service that the government was previously performing, and then the, the government's not going to perform that service anymore. You're going to cut back on staff. You're going to cut back on, on uh, you know, the direct government uh, running of whatever that program is. And, and usually uh, there's, there's ways to do that that result in cost savings for taxpayers. What's happening here is uh, DSHS is, is now just hiring this new contractor to come in and, and be a new entity, but DSHS is not cutting back on its own on its own staff or budget. So this is all new spending. Uh, now the, the the main argument coming from DSHS was that the case managers that are responsible for making sure that the clients, the the folks in need of home care, uh, are being adequately cared for. And that the the duties involved in administering kind of the employment aspects for the uh, the caregivers themselves was taking up a lot of time for case managers and diverting them from their primary job of, uh, of making sure that their clients' uh, well-being is protected. And you know I don't have enough information to verify whether that's true or not, but let's assume for the sake of argument that that it is. There are alternative ways of addressing that problem that cost less and that don't involve uh, a huge transition to this private entity and that don't involve forcing caregivers back into SEIU. For the tens of millions of dollars that this is going to cost taxpayers, it would be very easy to hire uh, some additional administrative staff, additional case managers if necessary, uh, to, to take over that paperwork that that is allegedly getting getting case managers bogged down, you could do that for a lot less uh, than the tens of millions of dollars that uh, that this bill is going to cost. And again, without the resulting disruption to the home care system that's going to take years to implement, and without the the legal changes that result in taking away caregivers' constitutional rights. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that SEIU has lost um, a lot of its membership since the Harris versus Quinn ruling. Has that loss in membership meant a, re, uh, a loss of political power as well? So uh, you, when we're talking about SEIU, I think it's in, it's important to distinguish you know between the various uh, right, two, there's SEIU multiple. locals. Uh, SEIU generally still is bringing in uh, huge sums in dues money. Uh, they are still very politically influential in Olympia. So I think it's it would be hard to to measure you know, political influence, but, you know, they, they're definitely uh, very influential players in Olympia still uh, with, with quite a bit of money at their disposal. Part of the reason for that is that these 
partial public employee unions, if you will, have far fewer obligations toward their members than a traditional uh, union would. Uh, when it comes to home care workers and child care workers, these are all home-based uh, home-based folks working out of their own homes in the vast majority of cases. So there, there's no workplace grievance process even because there is no workplace. Uh, the, there's no shop stewards. There's none of those traditional union roles to fill. Uh, the union's obligation is simply to sit down with the state every two years and negotiate a new contract over how much these folks are going to be paid. Now, that costs some money, but it doesn't cost nearly the, uh, in the case of SEIU 775, the almost $30 million a year that the union collects and dues from these folks. So that means the union has huge sums of cash at its disposal to spend on politics in state, out of state, uh, to, to take lavish trips around the country. Uh, for, for union staff and, and conferences and hotel stays. So they, they have more money than they know what to do with. So there is a ruling for Janus by the Supreme Court. Um, and we do see some public sector employee unions uh, reduce, reduce their membership as a result. It might not necessarily mean that they will see a reduction in political clout. Is that, is that right? You know, yeah, yeah, and I, and I think it's going to, again, I think this is really going to have to come down to a case-by-case -case, um, ex experience here. Uh, you know, I think some unions probably will lose some political influence, uh, and, and some probably won't. Again, it depends on how effective they are at maintaining their membership. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting, though, or, or it's definitely worth noting that the, the political influence that these government unions have now uh, I, I think it's fair to say that it's outsized, uh, meaning that it's it's not reflective of the employees that they represent. The reason that their political influence is as significant as it is is because they have this legally protected ability to compel people to financially support them. And so until we really know how many people would, would still support those unions under a voluntary arrangement, it's, it's really hard to say uh, – you know what what the appropriate level of their political power would be because right now they're able to co-opt the voices of anybody who disagrees with them. It, it seems like there's a reframing of the issue of union representation. Um, I mean, it used to be that workers were expected to pay into a union that helped bargain for better pay and working conditions, and now this issue is being re reframed as a civil rights issue, where a worker's rights are being violated if they're being forced to pay into a union that may engage in activities that they don't personally support. Uh, do you agree with that? Is, is there a reframing of this going on? I, I think to a certain extent that's true, but I think it's important to distinguish between public sector unions and, and private sector unions you know, when we're having that discussion. And I, I think the, the change here, I mean, there's, the Janus case is not examining the constitutionality of, of private sector unions being able to compel payment for representation. It's just looking at public employees' unions. And I, I think it's an appropriate reexamination of the role uh, and the structure of government unions. The, the, the legal theory behind uh, Mark Janus' arguments in that case is that public sector unions are inherently political. The work that they do is inherently political. In the past, the court has tried to distinguish between the overt political activity that the union, unions engage in, you know, using dues money for direct political contributions to candidates, uh, and then that representational work. Uh, what Mark Janus is arguing is that 
anything, any that the act of collective bargaining in government necessarily is going to affect the size of government. It's going to affect uh, the cost of government. It's going to have impacts on taxpayers. Uh, it's going to determine, in many ways, uh, the types of services that uh, that government provides to to taxpayers and, and service recipients. Those are all fundamentally political questions, and so that I, I think that's where the reframing is happening is is a recognition that uh, that in the public sector in government collective bargaining is inherently a political act that people have fundamentally differing uh, views on i think that's a, a healthy reevaluation i think i think that's fi- finally recognizing the reality of of, uh, of government unions and public sector collective bargaining maxford nelson director of labor policy for the freedom foundation thanks so much for doing this my pleasure jake thanks for having me on Okay, I'm Monica Stonier, state representative in the 49th district. Are you? How closely are you watching the Janus case that's currently before the Supreme Court? Mostly we're watching in context of how do we prepare for that as a state and what are the implications going to be in Washington state. The implications will be different, of course, in you know, right-to-work states or whatever, but we, um, I think all state legislators across the country are just being mindful of how it'll impact their own states. So from your point of view, how, depending on which way the, the court goes, how might this decision Im, uh, impact Washington state? Well, I think to the extent that we have always, you know, kind of maintained, or at least I have maintained, that our labor unions have a significant role in um, building our lower and middle working class um, economic mobility. Uh, the, the negative impact is one that I'm concerned about, uh, but I think, you know, as with any legislation, we have to be mindful of you know, where the where the communities and where the policy is moving. Okay. And so what um, might be some of the negative implications if the court rules in favor of Janus and finds that uh, government employees are not required to pay fees to, to public sector unions? Well, I think the negative impact is that as unions um, exist and as you know, the operations of bargaining or, um, you know, mitigation or workplace standards protections are in place, that has a cost. And we need to make sure that our unions have uh, the, the source of revenue to, to incur those costs. Uh, many people that are, you know, newly hired may not know uh, the benefits that come with membership to their union. And so we want to make sure that they understand uh, what those benefits are, um, and if they were to use those benefits, we want to make sure that they are helping to contribute to the cost. So you mentioned that the legislature had been thinking about Janus while they're crafting legislation during the, the the most recent session. What were some of the bills that were crafted or maybe passed out uh, that anticipated Janus? Yeah, I think one. You know, I prime sponsored a bill that um, made sure that when uh, employees opt out that they have the opportunity to first understand what they are opting out of. So if a, an employee doesn't want to, to contribute to the dues, do they also recognize that what they, what they could be contributing to is the protections and the operations of the union, even if they didn't want to contribute to the political side of it? And many folks, when they're first hired, don't have that background and in information. And so we want to make sure that they have the full breadth of information before opting out. Um, there were a couple of bills uh, that kind of helped with that. One was making sure that um, you know there's information provided to workers before they opt out. And another one is making sure that uh, union representatives had an opportunity to share that information you know, at an orientation or at the time of hire 
Um, and that was, you know, the goal of that is to have a collaborative conversation. We agreed that, you know, management should be present. We agreed that both should be in the room and offering for factual, these meetings, for, these meetings um, for having, making sure that employees get factual information um, about, you know, what the union provides and what their rights are and, um, you know, just a balanced collaborative conversation between management and union reps. Okay. And, and is that just pertains to public sector unions or is that? Correct. Okay. And that was HB uh, 2751? Right. Janice is going to change the operations of, of, unions, of unions as they, you know, engage with workers initially uh, moving forward. And so we just wanted to make sure we had some clear lines. Should Janice be, um, you know, approved or, you know, acted upon, then we want to make sure that um, workers have access to good information before they choose to opt. Uh, an employee doesn't have to, op- doesn't opt into the union, but instead has to opt out of the Correct. union. Okay. And so, and the whole point of that is that you, this gives an opportunity for uh, maybe newer workers to get uh, information about what their union does. Yep. They have an understanding of what it does and they'll, and they'll be persuaded to stay in. And in my personal experience and in stories that I've heard around the state, you know, a lot of times people don't recognize uh, the value of their union until they need it. And so, you know, I think that would be important to know before opting out of your union rep or union status. Um, you know, I don't know that when I was first hired as a teacher, I knew that I was a member of the union, um, but I didn't really know what exactly that meant. You know, I was hired out of college. I, you know, just kind of had a sense of what unions were about, but I didn't really know what that meant in the context of um, providing a safe and balanced, you know, workplace and workload or, or what I might need my union rep for in the context of a meeting with my administrator or, uh, in a conflict resolution with another colleague. Um, I just hadn't had those experiences yet. So it makes sense to have access to some of that information ahead of time if people don't have that background initially because those are very important worker um, protections that I think you know, maintain um, a, a viable workforce and, and workers should know about. So when you first joined the union, did you did you ever think, w- would you have been somebody who might have opted out of a union when you first started work? You know, frankly, I don't know that I thought about it much. Uh, I was excited to get my first job as a teacher. I was excited to walk into my classroom. Being a member of the union was a condition of employment. Um, so it wasn't a decision that I made initially um, to be a member or to, or to not be a member. Um, my focus was on being prepared for the first day of school and looking at the names of the students on my roster and getting to work there. Um, orientation for new teachers is fast and furious. So, you know, you have a couple of days and you learn about way more than you can absorb. I don't know that I would have been able to really um, absorb uh, in, that same, in that same frame of time uh, what my union would actually mean for me. It took some time for me to be a teacher to really recognize um, the value and the protections that were in place and the resources that my union provided. So, you know, I think there's a learning curve there and to, to shorten that time frame for education up so significantly, I think is a disservice to our workers. Um, but, you know, I recognize that we have to kind of adjust to whatever decisions come out of the U.S. Supreme Court. So do you think that somebody who's maybe starting as a teacher or another government employee today is thinking more about union membership and whether or not they want to be in a union? I think, I think they're thinking about getting to work. <laughs> I think they're, working right. about, they're worried about starting their job. Um, and I think that, you know, unless they've had an experience as a union member in the past, uh, they, might, they might not 
be considering that initially. They, they may be more concerned about you know, union membership uh, when they actually need to access their union rep or they need to, uh, for example, get information about an employee assistance program that you know, the, the employer may be able to provide some of that, of that information, but largely you know, the unions provide a lot of access to resources, not only in the community, but in the workplace. Um, so just going back to HB 2751, so if the court rules in favor of Janice, mm-hmm. how will that affect how that law is implemented? Well, I think the law will be implemented in Washington state as it is currently. So it kind of maintains uh, this and not, you won't see much of a change. Um, if, uh, you know, Janice is, is implemented, then we would just continue with union membership um, at employment and then an opt-out option down the road. Um, I don't think there would be much change here in Washington State. So you think that if just with this bill in place, that once new un- new workers at, mm-hmm. at state agencies, once they see the benefits of, of, union, of being a member of a union, that they'll be less likely to opt out of paying for fees or membership? I think they'll be better informed. I mean, I think if they do choose to opt out, they'll know what they're opting out of. And I think that's, you know, certainly the... Um, the choice of the worker, um, but I think they'll be better informed when they make that decision. I was reading up on this, and you gave a speech where you, you said the state workers are a member of a union first when there's a uh, uh, collective bargaining agreement, mm-hmm. and that opting out should be secondary. Um, well, I was hoping you could just explain that, what you meant by that. Yeah, I think you know that's kind of what I've been saying is that when you're when you're hired and you're hired as a member of a union, uh, when you opt out, you should have an opportunity to learn about what. Uh, your union provides for you beforehand. And, and additionally, you know, public employees do not get handed raises for, for high performance or for, you know, effectiveness. That is bargained. So I've said this, you know, a number of times. Legislator Monica Stonier doesn't say to teacher Monica Stonier, well, you had a really great year. You were incredibly effective. You know, we really think you improved. Um, the, the quality of, of education for kids in Southwest Washington, so we're going to give you a raise. It, it, it is a function of bargaining. So the, the way that, um, you know, that public employees uh, get access to um, pay increases that, you know, may or may not keep up with the cost of living uh, or benefits has to do with bargaining. And so it's even more important that uh, we recognize that that's where that effort comes from and it's not the same as, as in the public sector. What, what other bills were introduced during the last legislative session that had Janice in mind? Um, another one that didn't pass uh, had to do with, and, and, and probably less of a um, direct result of, of Janice, but more a matter of worker protections, uh, had to do with making sure that birth dates were protected. I mean, we have a lot of, you know, um, identity fraud and um, some so, security concerns when there's birth date information that is out uh, in the public along with all of the other information that is public uh, on around you know public employees that make that opens employees up to um, fraud so, so it's concerned out of fraud not maybe the freedom foundation contacting them and and say letting them know that they can opt out of paying oh user. right i mean that has nothing to do with it the freedom foundation may disagree but you know every year i get a letter from the freedom foundation telling me that i can opt out of my union they can find me they've been finding me for years that's not a concern they can okay. already do so you've that. gotten letters from the freedom oh, yeah. foundation yeah what did you ever write back no 
Okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so when you get these letters, what, what what do you think? What would you read them over, or do you just put them in the in the trash, or what do you do with them? Uh, typically, I well, the last time I got a letter, I actually posted on Facebook and just you know reminded employees that this is a letter that comes from the Freedom Foundation that I get every year reminding me that I can opt out of my union and reminding you know my colleagues and my friends what my union provides for me it's just a matter of an education to me it's an education opportunity so education snap a little picture of the letter for, for anybody to, who happens to be on my facebook to and, know that they're they have this effort and that they are successful in contacting union yep. members and this is what they're up and for. i know i can opt out and i'm choosing not to and that's a personal facebook page right that's not like i haven't i didn't do that this year on my on a campaign page or or, or a legislative page it was more of a personal opportunity for me to let my friends and family know um, Freedom Foundation is still continuing to contact public employees. They're quite effective at doing that. Um, I'm choosing not to opt out of my union for you know a number of reasons. One of the more controversial bills was uh, SB 6199. Um, it essentially contracted out employment of the state's uh, 35,000 individual home care providers. Um, what what was that bill about? I was hoping you could explain that one. Yeah, certainly. And and that may you know I think that showed up in a lot of the same. Freedom Foundation form emails that I received over the legislative session, um, but but it's not it doesn't to me have the same impetus. Uh, DSHS collects paperwork from each of our you know healthcare workers uh, to kind of process the administrative side. DSHS asked, could we facilitate that all collectively to save the time of each of these individual uh, care providers, these um, IPs? So that you know, we can kind of handle that collectively in a more systemic way, uh, and it was, so that it was the agency that requested this shift from just the agency. Oh, just, just, correct. Okay. Correct. Not, not anyone else. Not any unions or anything. Well, I mean, I think you know, anytime you see a policy uh, that benefits members, the unions are going to weigh in and support. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was a request from our state agency for the sake of efficiency. Now, of course, there's a bit of drama that um, came right. as a result of that. But I, I think that largely had to do with politics and less about, you know, what their what their concerns may have been about actually creating some efficiency in administrative costs. Um, I think it was like $11 million to implement this new system, but over time it would save administrative costs and time uh, to have all of those IEPs managed in-house instead of individually. But will it cost more money initially? I think the initial cost is $11 million for a savings over time. A lot of mm-hmm. the um, talking points that kind of came out of the Freedom Foundation emails and the legislators that are largely supported by the Freedom Foundation was this idea that we were passing pro-union policy in the dead of night. And Were you? Well, yeah, it was late at night and maybe in the early mornings. Well, However, why was it late at night? Well, be, this is and this is why I wanted to talk about it because you know I think one of the things that um, we don't recognize until you're actually working in the legislature is that you know that you're going to have a number of bills that are going to take a long time, a floor debate. You can you can recognize the other side is going to have long floor speeches. Um, so those were those while those were policies that we I think in the Senate side went pretty late. We had one I think it was the DSHS bill. Um, in the House side that went late at night. One of the things that I hope people recognize is that anything that we do at 11 p.m., midnight, 1 a.m. in the legislature is just as accessible 
through Twitter, Facebook, TVW that broadcasts floor debate, um, both live and, and, you know, on the website. You can go and pull off any bill that you want to watch debated. There is no lack of access to what the legislature is doing in the middle of the night. It is just as available as it is at 2 in the afternoon or 11 a.m. So I get frustrated around this, like, passing in the dead of the night so the public won't know. That's that's just kind of a hyper-response hyper to, it's a way to kind of catch headlines. Papers all across the state reported that we were passing policy in the dead of night, even though it doesn't actually matter what time it's passed. And also part of the drama was that no Republicans refused to vote on the bill. Oh, yes, that was another element of, of what, the Why drama. was that? Do you, what, what's your understanding? Well, I mean, I think that's that? a really good example of why things go late into the night, correct? I mean... The impact was the same. We knew the vote, the bill was going to pass. Instead of just pushing the no button, the red button, as the House Republicans should have, because the impact was going to be the same, they tried this new strategy that shuts everything down on the floor and eats up the time on the clock. So it's functions like that and, 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 and behaviors like that that actually eat up time and push us late into the night. It's not... So th there wasn't a protest on their part. It was, it was a strategy. I suppose it was a protest, but or, or it doesn't both, matter if they strategy. push the button or not. You okay. know, they're eating up time on the clock with the long floor debates. I think it's important for them to stand up and say what they think is um, wrong with what we're doing, and it's important for us to get up and say why we're doing what we're doing in order to support the workers in our state. It's also important for them to have an opportunity to offer amendments, some of which we took because we understood where they were coming from and agreed that they had good amendments to help improve the policy. Uh, so, so all of that is part of the process that I think is important, but to just go in and out of caucus several times, you know, over an hour and a half because they didn't want to push the button. I mean, that's just eating up time on the clock and getting headlines really. And the objection from the Republicans was that this bill would have shielded, uh, uh home health care workers from the efforts of the Freedom Foundation to contact them and let them know that they didn't have to pay into the union. That was right or was that the central objection i suppose i don't know that i buy that like i said you know the freedom foundation can get a hold of employees so it seems like with this case with janice is that the issue of being required to pay for union representation is being reframed or is or that's the underlying effort behind it uh it used to be that workers were expected to pay into a union that helped bargain for better pay and working conditions and now that payment is being reframed as a civil rights issue uh, where if a worker's rights are, are being violated to pay for a union that may engage in activities that they don't personally support. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, on this reframing of the issue. Is it is it a civil rights violation to make somebody pay for a union that may support activities that they personally don't agree with? I would say it's a civil rights violation to eliminate a tool for, you know, predominantly um, you're more likely to be living in poverty uh, if you are a person of color, uh, particularly in certain parts of the state and the country, or if you are an immigrant, uh, to, to take away an opportunity for bargaining for better pay and benefits for those communities. To me, that's the civil rights violation. The to, tool to, is the union. To, exactly. To take away an opportunity for a union to bargain for better wages and benefits for members of our community that have been, you know, just in generational poverty that's a, that's the civil rights violation i'm concerned about i do I'm, I'm i do entertain and negotiate internally you know how much of that union membership ought to be mandated uh if 
you don't want to contribute to the political action committee, I think that should be optional and it should be up to the political action committee to make a compelling case that you should contribute in that way. And that's the political side. The internal operations of a union, I think, are benefits to all of the workers and all of the workers should contribute. If they choose to not contribute, then I don't think they should be uh, able to call on the union to represent them in a dispute to, um, you know, regardless, they would benefit from the whatever increase in pay or benefits package comes as a result of the union, those workers would benefit anyways. And so I have some real concerns about benefiting from the value that a union brings without contributing to help that operation function. Are you worried that tool, the, the unions, are, are, you, are you worried that tool is going to be taken away? I'm not. You know, I think we have enough history in this country, and I think we have enough um, support, particularly in this state, uh, to show that our unions have provided a higher standard of living and safer work environments for those that are represented by unions. Um, and, and that probably wouldn't be the case otherwise. So I, you know, I think we, we recognize that um, where we are right now is we, we understand the value of unions. Uh, how, you know, whether or not we continue to see a diminishing impact, um, you know, that remains to be seen. Well, State Rep. Monica Stonier, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me.